Hello and welcome to another edition of Todd Talks Bible. This engaging discipleship-based Bible study is sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. And our teacher is Todd Tolles, the founder and director of CDM. A career firefighter captain before entering the ministry, Todd founded Church Discipleship Ministries to equip and empower believers to fulfill your calling to be a spiritual warrior dedicated to fulfilling the Great Commission. Let's listen in now as Todd Talks Bible. Is heaven going to be boring? I mean, is it going to be just sitting around in clouds and playing harps all the time? Well, let's talk about that coming up next. Hi, brothers and sisters. My name is Todd Tolles. I'm with Church Discipleship Ministries. I want to welcome you to our discipleship program, Todd Talks Bible. Today, we are looking at Revelation chapter 21, and this is where John's vision reveals to us the new heaven and the new earth. Let's dive right in. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a beautiful bride prepared for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, the home of God is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will remove all of their sorrows and there will be no more death or sorrow, or crying, or pain, for the old world and its evils are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. Then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to all who are thirsty, I will give the springs of water of life without charge. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards who turn away from me, and unbelievers, and the corrupt, and murderers, and the immoral, and those who practice witchcraft, and idol worshipers, and all liars, their doom is in the lake that burns with fire and suffer. This is the second death. So the first thing we see there is that there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So right there, we know that heaven is not just going to be clouds and playing in harps. And the fact that there's going to be a new earth uh, pretty well makes it clear that there's going to be a lot of activity going on down on this new earth. So I think it's safe to say that heaven will not be boring. Eternity will not be boring. And in fact, we need to start looking at it not just as heaven, but a new heaven and a new earth. Because we're going to see that the old heaven and the old earth was destroyed by fire. That's why there's a new one. And this probably occurred at Satan's last rebellion that we studied last session in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10 when he gathered up all the unbelievers and it was kind of like a second fulfillment of the Gog-Magog invasion and they had one last rebellion against God. Well, when God nipped that in the bud and destroyed them, uh, I think that's when he burned the earth, the old earth and the old heaven with fire. And we see this being predicted in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Let's read this. 2 Peter Chapter 3, starting verse 7, And God has also commanded that the heavens and the earth will be consumed by fire on the day of judgment, when the ungodly people will perish. So what happened, like we learned last week, right after the final rebellion of Satan? Well, it was the, the second resurrection, the judgment of the ungodly, the judgment of the unbelievers, and they were cast into hell. So that's what's commonly called the Day of Judgment or Judgment Day. So Peter says it's burned up this. I think it's right after that rebellion and when he uh, destroys all the people that were not believers in him and burned the earth with fire and the old heaven with fire and has created a new heaven and a new earth. We see this later on in the same chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3. Skip on down to verse 11. 
since everything around us is going to melt away, what holy, godly lives you should be living. You should look forward to that day and hurry it along, the day when God will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth, he has promised, a world where everyone is right with God. So Peter knew what was going to happen because Jesus had explained it to him. Remember how we learned that during those 40 days he was with the disciples after the resurrection, he explained all this stuff to them about the kingdom and whatnot. And he understood that one day God would destroy the old heaven and the old earth, but create the new heaven and the new earth. And that's what we're seeing here in Revelation 21, the new heaven and the new earth. And note one thing, I'll be honest with you, this one little description at first kind of disturbed me. I'll be honest with you, at first it just kind of disappoints me. It says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. Now that I got to admit, kind of makes me a little disappointed because at first when I read that, I thought, you know, I've always wanted to see the big ocean and maybe be out on a ship on the ocean and, and see that. I've seen oceans from the beach, but not like being on it. I've never been a sailor and I always thought that would be sharp to do. But uh, we're going to see something later on that gives me a little hope that there will be at least large bodies of water, if not the sea. But the old heaven and the old earth has been burned up, it passed away, and God has created a new heaven, new earth. And then we see God has a new home. That's right, in verse 3, remember? We just read, it said, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, the home of God is now among his people. He will live with them. And then it starts talking about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Well, I want to tell you something. This is exciting because I want you to think back uh, about throughout the whole story of the Bible. You see, Revelation is summing up everything you learn in the Bible throughout your life as a Christian. Everything that's in the Bible is being summed up in the book of Revelation. It's tying up all the themes, all the loose threads of stories. It's tying it all up, and it is making it all where it is just a perfect ending to this epic saga that started in Genesis. And part of this summing it all up is God getting a new home, living among his people on the new earth, in the new Jerusalem. Now think about this. See, God, it starts in Genesis. God lived in heaven and he walked in the garden in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve. But that wasn't good enough for God. He wanted to get closer. So then later on, we read after Moses led the people out of Egypt, that God was instructing Moses to build the tabernacle and the glory of God dwelled in the tabernacle with his people of Israel. And then he did that with the temple that Solomon built. And so he was there in the temple and he doesn't leave the temple, it says, until right before the Babylonians destroyed it. Uh, A prophecy in Ezekiel shows how Uh, The glory of God left the temple and then finally left Jerusalem right before the destruction. But then Jesus came back because he wanted to be close to his people. And he came and he walked this earth as a human. God on earth, Jesus, walks this earth. Again, getting closer and closer to his creation. Wasn't just in the cool of the evenings. Now he walked and lived just like them. And then when he died and rose again and went up to heaven, we see that through the Holy Spirit, God indwells all the believers, getting closer and closer to us, his creation. And then finally, here at the end, he lives among us. He lives among us. And we are all there in eternity with him in the new heaven, the new earth. And there he reigns in new Jerusalem. Well, I think that's just fantastic. So let's look at some of the things that goes on 
once God brings New Jerusalem down. If you look at verse three and four again, it says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, the home of God is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will remove all of their sorrows and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain for the old world and its evils are gone forever. But not only does he live among us, it says that he removes their sorrows. And if you look at the Greek, literally that means to dry our tears. Now, where, why will there be tears in heaven at all? Well, think about it. This is coming along right after the judgment of the unrighteous. And we are going to be conscious beings. And I think that we will know if some of our friends or loved ones are cast into hell because they refuse to believe in Jesus. And that will have to bring tears and, and sadness to our hearts. Now, some people say, oh no, there won't be any of that because heaven's gonna have no sadness. And, and, and that's true later on. But right here, it's clear that it says he dries our tears. So initially during this transition from the millennial kingdom into eternity in the new heaven and new earth, I think we're going to have some tears because we'll know of those that we loved who are perishing in hell. After all, God is going to be crying for them as well. God loves them more than even we do. So there will be that mourning, I think, of those who turn their back on Jesus and refuse to believe and were cast into hell because of their choice. But this is also a beautiful ending to a theme that goes throughout human history. It's not just the tears of our loved ones who have perished and maybe gone to hell, but it's all the tears we've had throughout our lives over the, the tough times we went through and the things we experienced. David wrote about it like this in Psalm 56 verse eight. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. So David understood that God loves us so much that he records every moment of our broken hearts, our tears, and he remembers every single one of them. But here in Revelation 21, when God is dwelling among his people and living in the new Jerusalem, it says that he dries all those tears. He heals us from all the memories and the pain. It's all gone because with him and his wonderful love living there right among us, it drives out all our sadness and it dries up all our tears. And then from then on, the people who said, oh no, there's not gonna be any sadness in heaven at all. They're right from then on. Look what it says. It says the old things have passed away. No more death, no more mourning. So, you know, you'll never have to mourn a loved one dying again because there's no more death. No more tears and no more pain, no more struggling, no more breaking your back trying to do your work. No more struggle in that sense. No more turmoil, no more sadness and loneliness, no tears because the old things have passed away. That's what the Greek says literally, because the old things have passed away and now the new things are starting, the new beginning. Now let's look at that new beginning. Again, in five verse eight, God talks about it. He says, "I, the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. And so this is a whole new beginning for eternity, new heaven, new earth, and a new existence for eternity in God's presence. And this is interesting to me because this kind of relates back to what the apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. He wrote, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So the newness is starting. The old things have passed away and the new is starting, the new life, the eternal life, an existence in the new heaven and new earth for eternity is beginning. 
And the Alpha and the Omega is making sure that's how it happens because he is the Alpha, the beginning, and he is also the ending, the Omega. So we see that God has a new home among his people and the new Jerusalem has come down. But he doesn't just stop there because of all these wonderful blessings that John's fixing to see. God orders John to write another prophetic warning. And he emphasizes that, hey, these words are trustworthy and true. Write this down. And this is what God says. He says, it is finished. And then he says, the thirsty will receive the water of life freely. And all believers will inherit these blessings. Let me read that again in verse 7, because I want to go into a little bit more in detail on that. Well, I'm going to just back up to verse 6. And he also said, talking about God, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give the springs of water of life without charge. All who are victorious will inherit these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Now, let me say this again. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. Now, the reason I want to emphasize that is there is an old, old, old false teaching that still pervades a lot of churches and a lot of people's understanding today. And I think it goes back to Dante's Inferno, that famous book. And a lot of people uh, think, and, and, and it's reinforced by some false teaching from the Catholic Church, but a lot of people think that there's levels of heaven. And the more holy you were here on earth, the higher up on the level you will be. I don't see any indication of that in anywhere in the Bible. In fact, it clearly says that all believers get all the blessings. There's no different levels of people. There's no uh, elites. There's not a caste system. We all, all believers, enjoy fully all the blessings of heaven. But this prophetic warning that God told John to write goes on to the unbelievers. And he says to the unbelievers, those who are cowardly and refuse to come to me. And that, you know, a lot of people read this and say, oh, why, why you know, if you're a coward or if you've ever done uh, anything immoral or lied, you can't go to heaven. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's clear. He says, look again. He says it this way in verse Eight, but cowards who turn away from me, unbelievers, the corrupt, the murderers, the immoral. So what he's saying is, look, the unbelievers, those who are too scared, too unwilling to die themselves and let their life be God's. See, that's, uh, you know, people sit there and say it's easy to understand how to become a Christian. And that's true. A child can understand but it's tough for people to do, especially the older they are. And sometimes many, many adults I have found just are too scared to die to their own pleasures and their own sins and let Christ have their life and Christ live through them. And so they're too scared, they're too cowardly to give their lives to Christ and they never believe. And that's what God's saying here. He's saying, look, the unbelievers... And he, 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 he sums them all up as one. The unbelievers, whether they were immoral or witches and or, you know, worshipped idols or just had lies. It doesn't matter. Whatever their sins were, the chief thing that determines their destination is that they were unbelievers. Not their sins. But it says that the unbelievers will not have a share in this new earth and new heaven. And we saw that last session in Revelation 20. They are cast into the lake of fire, the second death. And God emphasizes that here again. Now note, just like there, he said that there, all believers would enjoy all the blessings, that there was no level, levels to heaven, he's also saying there's no levels to hell. Whether they were a witch or an idolater or someone who lied, doesn't matter. The one thing it comes down to is that they did not believe in Jesus. They did not give Jesus their life and let him be Lord of their life. And they were all cast into hell. 
They're all in the same level, the lake of fire, along with Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist. They're all in there together. There is no levels of hell, like Dante's Inferno says, and there's no levels of heaven. So God makes that perfectly clear and gives John this prophetic warning to write because God wants everyone to know the blessings of heaven are only for those who choose to believe in Jesus. And those who don't are all cast into the same punishment of a lake of fire. No purgatory where you can work your way out. All are cast into the lake of fire, the second death. Now let's go on. Let's look at the New Jerusalem, the actual description that we find in the Bible about the New Jerusalem that came down from the new heaven. And this is the bride's new home. Let's pick up in uh, Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come with me. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he took me in spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It was filled with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious gem, crystal clear like jasper. Its walls were broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels, and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. When he measured it, he found it was a square, as wide as it was long. In fact, it was in the form of a cube, for its length, width, and height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick. The angel used a standard human measure. The wall was made of jasper, and the city was pure gold, as clear as glass. The wall of the city was built on foundation stones inlaid with 12 gems. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were made of pearls, each gate from a single pearl, and the main street was pure gold, as clear as glass. No temple could be seen in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations of the earth will walk in its light, and the rulers of the world will come and bring their glory to it. Its gates never close at the end of day, because there is no night. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter. No one who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So John sees an angel that he recognizes as one of the angels who held one of the bowls of God's judgment. The angel comes up and says, hey, John, let me show you the bride of God. And, And so he takes him to a mountain and he sees the new Jerusalem coming down. And he just sees the beauty of this wonderful, wonderful capital city that's going to be part of the new earth. Now, interesting enough, in verse 9, the angel says, come and look and see the bride. But we don't see the believers. And so a lot of people have misunderstood this as saying that the new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. But in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Paul says to the Corinthians, I've been trying to present you as a pure bride to Christ. So I think what this is going on here is that this is the city where the bride will live, where God will dwell, and there'll be comings and goings, and the bride will all be living there also with Christ and the King of Kings. So the New Jerusalem is here, and And this is kind of like the big capital city, like I said, of the new earth. And this is where we 
get the traditional descriptions of heaven is when we read the descriptions of the new Jerusalem. And again, you need to get out of your mind that it's just a heaven of clouds and hearts. It's not like that. It's a new heaven and a new earth. And let's look at this description. You'll see where we get a lot of the old hymns from when they're singing about what heaven's going to be like. Because this is, you know, eternity. This is wonderful. This is the new heaven and the new earth. So it's better than, a whole lot better than clouds and harps. But let's look at this. It goes on to say what, how, you know, what, how large this city is, what the size of this city is. And it's kind of funny because if you look at it in the, um, an older translation or in the Greek, you know, John says, well, he was measuring all this and, you know, it just so happened that the angel's measurements were the same thing as human measurements. So it literally was saying 12,000 stadia. And we don't know exactly how long a stadia was. Uh, some translations say 1,500 miles. Some say less. This translation says 1,400 miles. But you see that it's 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, and it's 1,400 miles high almost like a cube, but don't think of it like a spaceship. Some people say, oh, this is kind of like a spaceship that came down. No, it's talking about real tall buildings is what I think it's talking about. I mean, when, when people would try and describe how tall New York is, they're talking about the height of the buildings and how tall the whole city is. So this is the same way. It's 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles, but the the walls and then the buildings and everything, the structures are so tall that it's 1,400 miles tall. It's just a huge city, in other words, and God himself lives there. And we see that this city has a wall around it, and it has 12 gates, and each gate has the name of the 12 tribes written on it. Uh, you know, so there, I assume that means there's one tribe written on each of the 12 gates. But anyway, the 12 gates represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And then there's 12 foundational stones that are the foundation for the walls. And they have the names of the 12 apostles written on them. And interesting enough, uh, this to me is, is, is a beautiful expression of how finally the Jews and the Gentiles have become one people of God. In Ephesians 2 verse 19, Paul wrote this, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. So this is showing how since the, the, the gates have the 12 tribes of Israel marked on them and the foundational stones have the 12 apostles, it's showing how the Old Testament nation of Israel and the New Testament church have all become one people. The Jews and the Gentiles have all become one. And this is a beautiful, beautiful way of showing how we're all now one people of God. And interesting enough, these 12 gates, they're made out of pearl. That's where we get the pearly gates that we talk about. And every joke talks about how, you know, someone went up to heaven and saw Peter at the pearly gates. Well, this is the gates of the new Jerusalem. But note how it says, each gate's made out of one pearl. Now, that could be one or two ways. Either God is, has such an interesting architecture technique that he can make one pearl stretch and make a very pure, wonderful, strong gate out of it. Or it's very large oysters. I don't know. But each gate is made out of one pearl. And then it says that the 12 foundational stones each have 12 gemstones inlaid in them. Now, that's how I interpret it. Some people say that each foundational stone is made out of a separate gemstone. Well, the Greeks kind of says it's, it's inlaid. So I'm under the impression that all those gemstones are inlaid in each foundational stone. But maybe each foundational stone just has one of those precious stones inlaid into it, and the next one has a different one. I don't know. We'll have to wait till we get there and see, huh? But the main thing to see is that these are the foundational stones and the gates and things like this. And again, God is saying, look, these precious stones that you had are nothing to me, having so much better than the riches you could have ever dreamed of on earth. And that's pretty cool. 
I mean, he's using some of these precious stones as foundations. Now, I am not a jeweler, and there are different opinions on what each of these stones represent. The Greek is unclear on some of what these stones, we think we've translated them the best we can. And I uh, have looked at lots of material. There are, a lot of them are, are greens, uh, a, a red or purple and blue in some of them. But it doesn't seem to be any kind of clear message about what the colors represent, you know, whether it be a, from a pale yellow to a green or whatever. So if there is something more to it than that, we'll find out in heaven. Or if, you know, in your own studies, you find out what the symbolism of the different stones are, let me know. I'd like to know. But I'm not a jeweler, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the stones. Just rest it, you know, uh, let, let it be understood that these precious stones to us are nothing once we get to heaven. We can use them as foundations. It goes on to describe the New Jerusalem that the walls are of jasper and the city structures and the main street are made of gold so pure it is like glass. And that's where we get the golden streets of heaven, the streets of gold. And you maybe even heard people talk about that or sing songs about it. So the uh, New Jerusalem is so wonderful from our point of view. But again, God looks at gold as asphalt. So if he's using gold for a road, you know everything else is going to be spectacular. Now, one thing that's interesting in this description is that there's no temple in the New Jerusalem. Let's look at it again in verse 22. No temple could be seen in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, so obviously there's no temple in the New Jerusalem. Now, this means that the prophecy that Ezekiel had in chapters 40 through 44 of Ezekiel, those five chapters in the book of Ezekiel, are not talking about a temple in heaven, like some people have mistakenly said. That's just not true. There is no temple in heaven. Uh, not new heaven and new earth. No, it says clearly there's not one in Jerusalem there. So what Ezekiel had a vision of, I think, was probably the third temple. It's not the first temple because God left that temple and it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And, and Ezekiel had a, pro, uh, a vision of the glory of God leaving that temple and leaving Jerusalem before the destruction. And it's not the second temple because that too was destroyed by uh, an army, but it was the Romans. It was Zerubbabel's temple that was later modified and, and enlarged by King Herod, so it was commonly called Herod's temple. And those are the first two temples. But there is a, another temple that we know, we've already studied about, that's going to be built in the end times. It's the same temple that the Antichrist uh, stands up in and declares himself to be God. You know, the abomination of desolation that Daniel and uh, Jesus himself also prophesied about uh, Daniel in his book and Jesus prophesied about it in Matthew 24. And this third temple is probably the one that Jesus, when he returns as king, when the Messiah comes and returns as king, that he purifies because he is a priest of the Melchizedek order. So he purifies the temple after Armageddon and it becomes the temple that Ezekiel had all those visions about during the millennial kingdom. But after the millennial kingdom, when everything is destroyed by fire, the new heaven, new earth doesn't have a temple because God is our temple. And we can be totally at one with our creator forever and ever and ever. It also says in verse 23 that there's no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. Now, note, it doesn't say that there is no sun or moon. It just says that there's no need of them. A lot of people say there's no sun in heaven, no moon, and, and but that's not what the Bible says. It just says there's no need of them. Maybe there's a sun, maybe there's a moon for us to enjoy and look at as part of God's creation of the new heaven and new earth. Maybe there's not. There's no need for one in the New Jerusalem because Jesus and the Lord 
is the light. But it doesn't say that there is not one. And I think when you're talking about what's in heaven and everything, we need to go exactly by what the Bible says. If we don't, that's where we get all this false teaching of multiple levels and clouds and harps, which none of it is true, like we've shown. So it says that there's no need of a sun or moon, but it doesn't say whether or not they exist. It also says that the gates, the ones we've talked about, are never closed. Now, why is that? Because it's always day. Now, see, what it's talking about is the imagery. We don't have walls to protect our cities anymore with gates. But back in John's day and throughout human history, as you well know, uh, cities were built with these huge walls to protect them. And they kept the gates open during the day to help keep the wind circulating through the city, but also so that commerce could be done. But at night, because that's when most enemies would attack under the, you know, being hidden by the darkness of night or more thieves and everything come trying to steal things, everything bad is going to happen at night typically. So they would shut the gates and lock them up to protect those who live in the city. But these gates are just really ceremonial gates. There's no need to shut them down because God himself is protecting the city and is never night. It's always day because of their glory shining forth. And also, it's a way of saying it's always secure. I mean, let's face it. Who's going to go try and, and rob somebody in New Jerusalem? I mean, it's all Christians, all believers in this new heaven and new earth. Second of all, uh, if some reason even crazy idea did occur where there was someone who might want to do that, there ain't no way they're going to do it in reality because God himself is protecting the city. And that's what it's saying. There's no need to shut the gates. And also, it's interesting, though, it says people will come and go. Because listen to what it says. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor, honor into the city. No one evil is able to enter because why? They've already been destroyed and, and sent to hell. And this is another prophetic warning that John has in verse 27. It's for believers only. But evidently, these believers will migrate out from the city into the new earth, and there will be other nations and things going on. So I don't, it doesn't say anything why, what they're going to be doing. It just says the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. So interesting things are going to happen. I mean, think about it. We'll have all of eternity. 10,000 years will be nothing. It'll be on forever and ever and ever. And I can see neat things being built or done, exploring the new earth. I don't know. No one knows. But evidently, according to what Scripture says, there will be these comings and goings from New Jerusalem. And I think it's going to be exciting. Now, let me stress something here, too, about heaven and what activities are going on. We're just making the best guesses possible based on what Scripture says. I'm not trying to add anything or take away, and you never should. And the reason I say that, some people say, oh, I'm going to spend all eternity fishing because I never did get to do enough fishing here on earth. And then there's always the holier-than-thou people that say, oh, no, all you'll be doing is worshiping God. And that's where we get the whole harp and cloud syndrome. And evidently, you know, it's way in the middle of those two extremes. Like most truths of Scripture, it's in the middle of the two extremes. I don't think it's going to be nothing but where you get to go party and have fun and do whatever you want. I don't think it's going to be like that. We've seen in the book of Revelation that there's plenty of worship services, and there's going to be plenty more worship worship services. And it says that, you know, the New Jerusalem, it referred to, to the new, this city as the Bride of Christ. So the Bride, most of us are going to be living there. But it does say there's going to be comings and goings in and out through the city. And, and that's normal. I can understand that. I don't know exactly what they'll be doing, like I said. But there are going to be people going out, maybe exploring this new earth. Maybe setting up a dwelling over there. But they will bring their tributes and, and coming back to worship the Lord all the time. It will be no hostilities. It will be no one trying to backslide. It will be no one trying to get away from God. It's just part of us all enjoying the blessings of the new heaven and new earth. So it's not going to be a somber song fest with a harp in the clouds like some holier-than-thou believers think. And it's not going to be just nothing but fishing and, 
and swimming and eating like other people who are just thinking in earthly terms think. It's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, and we will worship God. He will live there with us, but it will be eternity to build relationships with him and with each other, with the other saints that maybe we have just read about in the Bible. It will be interaction going on. We'll be worshiping God together. We will be going in and out of the city together. It will be beautiful. But that is not anything compared to what's coming next. Let's look at the next chapter, Revelation 22. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 6, because that really is the ending of this description of the new heaven and new earth. And this section in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 6, is what I like to call the river of life. Let's listen to it. Revelation 22, starting in verse 1. And the angel showed me a pure river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, coursing down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, and a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will anything be cursed, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. And the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord God, who tells his prophets what the future holds, has sent his angel to tell you what will happen soon. So the angel that's giving John this tour shows him the river of life. It's the living water that was talked about earlier in this chapter that God promised that everyone could drink freely of and all believers can share in its blessings. And it starts from the throne of God and flows out all down through Main Street. And it has a, a tree of life on either side of it. Now, what's interesting about this river is that it's, the same river that Ezekiel saw in his vision in Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 12. He describes the same river. And the angel took Ezekiel at different places for him to wade in this river. And it started off shallow near the throne of God. But as it progressed on, it got deeper and deeper. And finally, it got so deep that Ezekiel was afraid to swim across it. And the angel told Ezekiel, this goes all the way down to the Dead Sea and purifies the water from the Dead Sea, you know, because the Dead Sea's dead because of all the salt content. But this washes out all that and turns it into a, a living sea again. It's all clean with the living water of God. Now, that excites me because remember how I said I was a little disappointed that there's no seas and oceans anymore? Well, obviously, this river of God, just, you know, like anything about God, is in abundance and never fails. It just keeps going and going and going. And I hope, I don't know for sure, but I just got this inkling that maybe the river of God, after it fills up the Dead Sea, it just keeps going and going and going. And that's where we get the new seas and oceans from. Oh, I hope that's true. I don't know if it is or not, but boy, it's neat to think about, isn't it? Wouldn't it be cool to go swimming in the river of life the very essence of God's love and the living waters flowing from his throne, that would be great. And to just see an ocean of it, ah, you know, it could be 10 oceans. It could be the oceans on every planet in the universe, and it still would not exhaust God's supply of the living waters that he provides to his believers. It's just a beautiful, beautiful picture of what this abundant life that Jesus gives us. But else, also in that passage, we see a lot of neat things happening. And I like to call it the old gives way to the new. The old gets, gives way to the new. Uh, in, in the old days, in the garden, we were banned from the tree of life. But here we read in the new Jerusalem, in the new earth, the tree of life is on either side of the bank of this river of God, the river of life, and it's freely available. In fact, the leaves are used to heal the nations. 
In the old way, nature was cursed from Adam's sin. That's why we have to toil and work so hard to produce food and fruit and, and make a living. But in the new earth, there's no more curse. Verse 3 says, no longer will anything be cursed. You know, we the, the curse of Babel where he gave us all different languages and sent us to different places, that too will be gone. We'll be totally united, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, no matter what nationality you are, totally united, totally equal as one people of God. No curse whatsoever. In the old way, God walked in the garden in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve. But in the new earth, the new Jerusalem, we actually live with him. And then it goes on to talk about how there won't be any need, again, for a sun or lamps. And I like this because in the old way, we were once ruled by the night, weren't we? Every time night came, that meant another day was under our belts and maybe we worried about the next day and what all we had to get done. And we were always struggling against time, don't we? I mean, I know I do, and I'm sure you do too. Throughout human history, we've always been fighting this battle against time. That's the old way, but in the new way, in the new earth, we will literally have all the time in the world. An inexha inexhaustible supply of time. And that will be wonderful. More time to spend with God, more time to fellowship with other believers, more time to worship, more time to do anything that God tells us to do. It will be wonderful. We will no longer be ruled by time. But that is still, everything we've described so far about how wonderful heaven is, is still nothing compared to this. To me, the greatest blessing. Read again with me in verse 4, Revelation 22, verse 4, and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. You see, in the old way, we could not see God's face, but in the new earth, we can. In Exodus chapter 33, verses 17 through 23, we read the story of Moses and he had already been up there and gotten the, the law from the Lord. He went back down. You know the story. And he caught them worshiping the golden calf. And, and God was upset. And he was going to destroy them all. But Moses stood in the gap and prayed for them. And, and God said, okay, I won't destroy them. And this was such an intimate time of prayer for Moses before God that Moses said one more thing. Listen to this. Exodus 30, verse 17. And the Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked, for you have found favor with me, and you are my friend. In other words, he's not, not going to destroy the people because my friend has asked me not to. And that's when Moses gets the courage, and he says, I have one more request. Please let me see your glorious presence, he said. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name, the Lord, to you. I will show kindness to anyone I choose. I will show mercy to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, Stand here on this rock beside me, and my glorious presence passes by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you there with my hand until I have passed. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see me from behind but my face will not be seen. And you may remember some hymns that have those words in there. He hides me in the cleft of the rock with his hand. That's what it was referring to. Moses wanted to get closer to God. He wanted to see him face to face like friends do. But God says, you can't because you are still of the old way. You still have sin. You're still human, even though you believe in me. You still have the corrupt, sinful nature. You don't have your glorified body yet, so you can't see my face. In Psalm 11, verse 7, David writes and talks about this. And he says, For the Lord is righteous and he loves justice. Those who do what is right will see his face. So David was looking to the future again when one day we'll be able to see God's face. 
Uh, the psalmist also writes in Psalm 17, verse 15, but because I have done what is right, I will see you. When I awake, I will be fully satisfied, for I will see you face to face. That, brothers and sisters, I think is the most precious, beautiful, wonderful thing about heaven. Not the jewels, not the streets of gold, not the new heaven and not the new earth. But that we can finally see our Lord, our God, our King, our, the one who makes life worth living. And like Moses himself said, he is your life. We will finally be able to see him face to face. No more sin will keep us away from him. Our physical corrupt flesh won't keep us away from him because we'll have our glorified bodies. And he won't have to hide us in a cleft of a rock. We can be there and see him face to face. And that is going to be the most beautiful thing about heaven. And how do we know it's true? Because an angel, the same angel tells John, these words are trustworthy and true. And God tells his prophets what's going to happen in the future. And that's why God gave us this book of Revelation to reveal to us who Jesus is and to reveal to us what eternity will be like with him. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait to hear God, the Lord Jesus, call me his friend and talk to me face to face. Oh, that's going to be a beautiful time before our Heavenly Father, isn't it? Well, in the meantime, keep your eyes to the sky and read your Bible. Thank you for listening to Todd Talks Bible, sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. For more information, please visit churchdiscipleshipministries.com or check today's show notes for the link. Our teachings are also available on YouTube. Simply search for Todd Talks Bible. I'm Brian Race, encouraging you to subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also consider sharing this timely teaching with someone you believe needs to hear it. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.